You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Carlos Ruiz Zafon is the author of The Fog Trilogy and Marina. His novel, The Shadow of the Wind, first appeared in English in 2004. His newest and most recently translated novel is The Angel's Game. Thank you for joining me, Carlos. Thank you. Carlos, uh, these novels seem to me to be a lot about architecture. There's, there's a lot of architecture in here, the architecting of the plot, the characters, the city of Barcelona. Did you study architecture? Not really, but I'm fascinated by architecture. I'm fascinated actually by structure, by engineering, by systems, by codes, by, by all these things you use, by structures, by language, but all these codes, all these things that you can use to build things, to construct things, to construct stories, images, words, ideas, buildings, uh, computers, whatever. I've always been fascinated by the mechanics of things, or how you engineer something, how something works. And I'm always trying to figure it out and trying to reverse engineering and try to find out how this thing works. I, I want to learn how it works so I'm able to use it. And I've always been like that. And I think since, of course, I, I'm a writer, that's how I make a living. I apply that kind of thinking into narrative, into language. I'm always trying to, to learn about a structure, about the engineering of storytelling, how everything works, how everything every piece fits with each other. And I'm fascinated by those things and by architecture, by all the stuff. Yes, it's one of my main, I think it's how part of how the how my brain is wired you know it came from the from the factory version of the whatever software I have you know it, it came pre-installed it's like one of those crappy windows things that people say can I change it no actually it comes with this XP thing that is horrible and it's the same thing with me it came with the default version of the software oh, that really goes with one of the things you say about writing that I think is really uninteresting um, in, in the Angels game. Your books are passionate. They're filled with wonderful romance, really full, developed, emotional characters. They're just like real memories when we read them. But what you have, your character says is that he says that literature is science tempered with the blood of art and that emotional truth is a technique in writing, not a moral quality. Well, I think because it's very important. I always thought that for a writer to develop your craft and, and to, to really learn the tools of the trade, to really learn the techniques, I think that uh, we all have things to say. We all have experiences. We all have emotions and ideas. But I think it's the job of the writer to take this material, this emotional material, and to turn it into something that works dramatically, that works as literature. And I think that you're only able to, to get as far as your skill, as your craft allows you to. So to me, it's very important that writers learn to do their job, learn them well. So that's why I always have this emphasis. And in The Angel's Game, which is pretty much a book about many things, but one of them is about writing. It's about the, the, the writer's life. It's about storytelling. We have these conversations between the protagonist and his apprentice. The protagonist is a writer, and he has this young girl who's some kind of uh, an aspiring novelist. And they talk about the construction of things and how to do things. And one of the things he says, and in this case I share what he's saying is that this emotional truth, which I think it's, it's necessary, it's this honesty in the emotions that you put in the book that have to come, they need to have some kernel of truth. They need to have, be something honest, sincere, 
to, 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 to so, so you can take that and transmit that to the to the reader. But that alone is nothing, means nothing. What is going to make it work is how you take that and construct it technically, literally, so 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 it reaches and so it does what it has to do. I think that's very important in fiction, and I try to work very hard at those aspects because I think that's that's the what sustains it all. You know, it's like to me, a novel is a cathedral of words, and 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 the, the mathematics that that make it that make that possible are extremely important. Not that the reader has to be aware of those things. I think that when you read it, I hope that I'm writing stuff that people enjoy as if they were swimming through crystalline waters. They're enjoying the characters, the drama, the adventure, the mystery, the romance. But for all of that to work, for all of that to be to, to, to get to the to the reader in a really intense and efficient way, I think that I need to be well aware of what I'm doing and I try to do that and try to work my craft very hard so I really know all the tricks of the trades and have all the tricks in the back ready to use them when they're necessary. Could you talk about how you developed your craft? I think um, I've been writing forever. Uh, all of, when, when I look back, I realize that all of I've been doing through my life is making up stories and telling them. I was making up stories when I, before I could ever write them. I remember as a child, I was always making up stories and worlds and characters and telling these things verbally. At some point, I learned to read and write very early on, and then I was starting putting them on paper. And when I was nine years old, with a bunch of friends, we created this small publishing thing at the school I was going. It was a Jesuit school. And we created this kind of a publishing house. I was writing uh, stories that were like 10, 11, 12 pages. And we had another friend who was who was our production man, whose father owned a Xerox machine, which back in the early 70s was kind of incredible technology. And then we had a fourth friend was the artist who would draw the covers. And we had a fourth guy who was the marketing man because he was very outgoing. He would w- walking around the playgrounds and the hallways of the school selling our wares. And we became extremely successful. There were these horrible stories that I was writing, a lot of them about mysterious things that came from outer space and kill everybody on page three. They were extremely violent and sinister. And, and we were so successful that we, for the standards of nine years old, uh, old kids, uh, we were f- floating in cash. We thought, oh my God, we're doing great. Uh, everybody's loving this stuff. And we were very successful. And I think we were too successful because some of the teachers at the school started buying these stories. And they got to the, uh, to the at some point, they got to the principal's office. And the principal started reading this stuff and he became horrified. He thought the material was subversive, that we were polluting the, the hearts and souls and minds of an entire new generation of white bread captains of industry and that oh my god he thought it was immoral what we were doing and he shut us down violently so that was my first experience at publishing and censorship at the same time and I say you know I knew I was on the right track I was doing what I felt I had to do which was but I needed a better business model that didn't put me in conflict with the authorities and if this was a religious school so you had to be careful with what you were doing but and since then I've been writing. When I was a teenager, I wrote this kind of a monstrous, seven hundred page Victorian Gothic that almost got published. Luckily, it didn't get published. Could have been very embarrassing to have that thing around. But uh, so and and then I would write plays and I would write short stories and many things. I worked in the theater for a while. I remember with with friends writing plays. And eventually I became uh, a working writer, a professional writer, because that's, uh, I, it was never to me 
uh, a matter of, of being a writer or not. I knew I had to be that. To me, the only the only thing that I was concerned as a child say, how do I make a living being a writer? Because I was aware that it was going to be something difficult just to survive, just to be able to do what I had to do, what I wanted to do, and be able to, to survive in the world. And, and I managed to do that early on, and this is what I've been doing always. And I always was very aware that what I needed to do was to work really hard, that whatever talent I may have, given talent, you know, you're born with certain cards, you know, life gives you cards. But I thought that, um, that in many ways, being a writer or being a creative artist was like being an athlete. You may have a natural ability that comes from the factory settings, you know, you're, there's no merit in that. It's, it's given to you. But if you want to do something unique with that, or not unique, or, or do your best, you have to work at it, and you have to develop, and you have to really know what you're doing to be able to do your best. And I remember when I wrote this kind of huge, monstrous novel when I was a teenager, one of the lessons that I thought it taught me is that I felt that I had to write many, many pages that nobody would ever read before I earned the right to write a single one that deserved other people's attention. And I took that to heart, and I worked for, for quite a few years not trying to publish things, right? trying to write things to learn how to do, how to do the job. And, 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 to, to, and, of course, in reading a lot and, and, and trying to, to learn and, and practicing and trying to, to get to a point where I felt that the, the material I was writing was decent enough to deserve somebody's time. And at some point, I thought that I got to that point, and then I started publishing. I published my first novel when I was, uh, I don't know, I mean, my mid-20s. And I remember that back then, I felt so old. People say, well, this, this, they would introduce me, this new young author. And I was thinking, new young author? You know, to me, it was so clear I should be doing this when I was nine years old. And now I'm an old man, and I'm publishing my first book here at 25 years old. I was so embarrassed that I was getting so late into the game. And, uh, but I say, you know, but this is how it is. And, and, and since then, I've been, I've been just this, a working writer, professional writer. And, and I hope to keep on learning. It's not that I think that I've, I've got, I think that the more, I, the more things I do, the more I write, the more things I learn. And I think that I keep evolving in, and, and I hope to continue to be able to learn more and to, to do a better job. Well, could you talk about uh, some of the books that haven't been translated? Tell me about the Fog Trilogy. I'm really curious about it. These are uh, my first novel, which was uh, later on it was compiled at my suggestion because I always thought that the first three books I published to me were part of a, of a bigger thing and that I called it the Trilogy of the Fog. And uh, the, prince, the, the first of them was something called The Prince of Mist. Uh, and it was a novel that I wrote, was my first published novel that it put me in, in a very peculiar position because a book that became quite successful when it was published in Spain back in in the early 90s. And, and it won a big award that at the time was given for young adult uh, literature that came with a sizable amount of cash. Of course, at the time, it was a working writer, it was a start in my career. And of course, you become kind of very conservative if somebody puts money on the table because you need to pay your bills, you need to, to put clothes on you and that, that kind of thing, you know, buy food, etc., gas, power. And then I think I became so conservative and, and so reluctant to jump from a train that was leading somewhere that I'd stay in a genre that I never thought was going to be my genre. I never thought it was going to be a young adult book writer, 
not that there is anything wrong with it, but I never thought that it was my register. And I always thought that I was kind of faking it. Say, so, you know, one of these days, somebody's going to knock on my door at 4 o'clock in the morning, and they're going to be arrested, say, you are polluting the hearts, and say, you're going to be the same thing that when I was 9 years old. Because a lot of the people, kids love that, those books, but a lot of adults like them as well, and most adults find them very scary. And say, oh my God, this is scary. I need to read it with the lights on. I say, oh my God, I'm, I'm getting in trouble here. So to me, they were mostly stories. They were stories that had a, a, a lot, a lot of fantasy. They had this strong Gothic overtone to them, and they, they were coming of age stories, adventure, mystery, romance. I think they were kind of similar in many ways to, to the books I would write later on, A Shadow of the Wind or The Angel's Game. But I was, since I was aware that suppo the supposed main audience of these books were young adults, I had some limitations, some control, some things that it was imposing on myself trying to, and especially to me, to me it was never different writing for young people or for old. I just write for people who like to read. I don't care about their ages or their tastes. I, I'm just trying to write for, if you like to read, I'm writing for you. And that was always my, my motto. And, and to me, it was writing for just stories that I thought would appeal to readers. But if those some of these readers were going to be younger, what I would do is try to include that. What I thought was important was emotional references that were relevant to somebody young. Because a lot of younger readers, I think, I, I would think of myself when I was a young reader. I say, you know, I wouldn't read anything except something that came with the stamp of young adult reader because I found that condescending. So I thought that readers are readers. And when you're you're young, you also want to read, and you read a lot of stuff. The things is that probably, although there are many things that intellectually you're able to understand, there are things that emotionally, if you have not gone through these things, you're not going to be able to relate to them in the same way, although you understand them from a purely intellectual level. So what I would try to do is to include ref emotional references in these books that could appeal to younger readers because they were about experiences that probably had some resonance to them. Other than that, they were no different from adult books because they were just stories, books. And I wrote three of these books. And at some point, a fourth, fourth novel called Marina, that was a hybrid. I knew at the time I felt that it was a total faker, that I could not continue writing these books and publishing them as young adult novels because that's not what I felt they were. To me, they were mostly mystery, adventure stories, fantasy stories, gothic fantasy stories. And that this fourth novel was the one that proved it all, and, and nobody thought it was a young adult novel. Kids loved, them as, loved it as well, but mostly it was received as, a, as an adult novel. And I think from that moment on, I realized that I could not try to continue to limit myself, that I had to, to, to get to a wider canvas or just start writing the kinds, of, the kinds of books that I felt were exactly what I wanted to do. And by then, I think all these books had allowed me to experiment and to learn many things. And eventually, I started working on Shadow of the Wind, which became my first so-called adult book. And for many people, my first novel, but I was, when again, they were talking, well, this new author, and I said, new author, dude, I've been doing this for a long time, you know, but it's these ironies of publishing. You change your arena, and then you're new again. Could you talk about some of your influences as a reader? What When you grew up, when you were a kid, nine years old, what books really grabbed you and said, my God, reading is really fun? I remember uh, when, I was, when I was a kid, I loved to read mystery stories. 
I would read a lot of noir writers. I remember discovering Raymond Chandler and Ross MacDonald and James L. Cain and all that stuff, and I love that stuff. And I also was reading a lot of science fiction, fantasy. I remember there was a generation of writers, mostly American writers, that came uh, into their own and through the 70s that I enjoyed very much as a kid. That would read Peter Strauss, Stephen King, all those guys. And uh, I remember also reading fantasy, the Tolkien, etc., The Lord of the Rings. I would read also a lot of classics that were around. I remember reading John Steinbeck and Thomas Mann and a lot of these things. I, I, I would get these volumes that would say the complete works of so-and-so that came with this microscopic type that somebody had designed the book so nobody could read it. Or if you read it, you could induce a new kind of killing migraines or something like that. Say, who's the idiot who designed this thing? To begin with, the paper was transparent. The type was, I don't know, I, you probably needed a telescope to, to, to read that thing. Somebody didn't. But I try to, I, you know, when you're young, your eyesight is better. Probably if I try to read these things now, it would be impossible. But I was reading these things, and I remember I read a lot of classics and read Dickens and read a lot of those writers. And I, I was essentially fascinated that, that by all storytelling. And to me, when I was very young, I didn't really make or, or put borders between different kinds of storytelling. I remember I, I, I was fascinated by films at the time, and I was fascinated by, by Orson Welles. Back in the day when I was growing up in Spain, you only had two TV channels in the early 70s. But one of these were, was very good because you could, every day you almost you would put all these cycles of fantastic classic movies that you could not find anywhere. This was way before VHS tapes or, or cable or things like that. But they were putting all the Billy Wilder movies, all the Orson Welles, all these fantastic classics, and I would watch them all. And I was stunned by that kind of storytelling. I always found that fascinating and tried to figure it out how they were doing that and to me it was was coming it was a different tradition was a different thing but it was like the theater or they were different forms of storytelling and to me were as important as books eventually with time as with growing older I started developing more discerning tastes and I would put one thing in another place but I was always fascinated by all sorts of storytelling but I would read anything I would read anything I, and I think that has to this day I've continued to do so I've always tried to be a reader without prejudices. I've never listened to labels or to, to people who try to convince you what is good, what is bad, what is the high brow, the low brow, the left brow, the right brow, the back brow, and the front brow. I don't know, you know, all that stuff sounds like bullshit to me. And to me, it was transparent. A lot of the time it was just masking personal agendas or prejudices or snobbery or purely marketing, you know, ways of marketing things. And I thought, you know, I, I, I think I came, they, they put a brain between my ears when I was born, so I'd rather use it rather than just parrot with Professor Radinsky is trying to convince me that I should be saying and say, I don't know, I don't trust this guy. There's something suspicious with the Professor Radinskys of this world or, you know, trying to, to enforce prejudices and, and narrow-mindedness and so I would read anything and then I would end up just to me there were two kinds of writing good and bad and I like good writing and it comes in all forms sometimes it's a mainstream novel sometimes it's a crime thriller sometimes it's an obscure doesn't matter it's good writing and, and, and you recognize it. it has craft it has beauty it has language has ideas has any it, it comes in very different genres and forms and this is what I've always liked as a as a writer and as a reader and and up from, from a very early age so that has really that hasn't really changed one of the things that uh 
uh, David Martin says in the book, and I think this is really true about the best writing, is that it, he's trying to manufacture memories. That that the best writing is after you've read it, the reading experience. The best reading experiences create things that are like memories where you can go back and visit in your mind. I think it does. The thing, and, and, and when we think about classic literature and the great novels and the great books of history, especially with, we, we remember seeing images, characters. We, we don't tend to remember entire plots, but we remember these beats, these moments, these images, these scenes, or, or a character or something, an image that stays with us and has a lot of meaning. I think that's that's what those things that stay with you after after. I think that the intensity when when literature really works, when something is well written, well crafted, when it really stimulates your your mind, when it gets inside of you, when you forget that you you're holding a piece of paper with markings in your hands, and actually you're inside that world, that thing stays with you. And long after you've closed the the book, I think that is when. That, that is the really great thinking that, that, that literature, good literature inspires. Sometimes there's this kind of abstruse, obtuse literature that you have to just to try to figure it out because it doesn't make any sense or it's so badly written. It's like, or it's extremely pretentious. And you read the same page three times and say, oh my God, what the hell is this? And it say, oh no, it's so clever because I, so you know, the, the most simple thing it is is to write something that is impenetrable. You know, a monkey can do that. But what you're trying to do if you want to, want to invite your readers to think is to write something that seduces, that, that engages, and so that after you've closed the book, a lot of questions, a lot of elements are stay, stay inside of you. And this is where the, the dialogue between you and the work starts. When you're reading, you have to be fascinated. You have to be having the time of your life. And then that book is planting a lot of seeds in your mind. It's not trying to preach you. It's not trying to present a puzzle that you have just to figure out exactly what this absurd sentence means. And when you figure it out, say, okay, I got it. Move into the next one and say, what, what's, you know, I think that really intelligence in art and in literature doesn't come from pretension. You know, when something tries to tell you how smart it is, usually it's because it's not smart at all. You know, or something tries to convince you how cool it is. It's the less, least cool thing in the world. You know, cool things or smart things don't try to advertise themselves as cool or as intelligent. They are because they affect you. They, they get into your mind and your soul without you even realizing how powerful they are. And that's great literature. That's great storytelling. Your, your novels, both of them, have a... a, a a real fascination, of course, with the city of Barcelona. And it's not the Barcelona that we know of. And in fact, you spoke earlier, this is more like um, Barcelona as seen by Orson Welles. Yeah, well, this is, this is um, um, the thing is that quite often nowadays, a lot, of, a lot of people have a notion of Barcelona as a very touristic city or kind of sunshiny, fashionable place with a lot of boutiques and cool cafes and a very cool thing, etc. And that is part of contemporary Barcelona. But there's much more to the city than that. And, and, and it's a city I know very well because I was born there, I was raised there, I lived there most of my life. And it's a city I know extremely well. I know its history. And I think I've, I've grown to... Um, I'm, what I'm trying to do is try to go past this mirage of of the purely touristic areas or and try to get into to what I feel is unique about the city, about the soul of the city, and try to use it in a dramatic context. And one of the things I always wanted to do, and it's, 
was to, to use Barcelona rather than just as a backdrop but a setting as a character, as an organic character, and try to transform it and try to use things about it. I've always been very respectful to the physicality and the history. I'm always extremely faithful to how things are. But what I'm doing is doing an extreme stylization. That's where probably the Orson Welles come. You know, this, this it, it's how you look at it, how you, how you stage things. But I think that in that way, I'm able to go beyond an, an the appearance of, of banality that we have a lot of modern cities nowadays, this touristic angle that is not necessarily very different from many other cities. But there's something about Barcelona that to me is unique. And this is what I'm trying to write about. This is what I'm trying to re, to, to get to. And I think this is in its history, in the soul of the city. And I think that this is what, what, what the readers of, of these books uh, recognize, even if be it locals or visitors, I think a lot of people get to see this this real Barcelona that is behind the purely touristic uh, Disneyland that you may see for two or three days if you go there as a visitor. You know, there's a real city behind that. And it's much more fascinating and as, as fun as this more touristic city may be, you know, I think what, what attracts people from around the world to the city of Barcelona is the other stuff, you know. The, the, Bene, the Benetton mega stores and things like that, you can find them anywhere, you know, and yeah, they're, they're fine. I don't know, it's okay, but you don't necessarily have to cross the world to find those things because anywhere in the world you go, you're going to find the same things. But there are things that are unique to, to every city, to every place, and this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, to go scratch below the surface and bring the real essence of the city and I think that is what is attractive about Barcelona and to me it's very interesting to use that in a dramatic context not just as a setting that is sitting there no it's as, as an active character in the story uh, I find it fascinating because I've really never thought about Barcelona ever before and now my picture of Barcelona is closer to what most people think of uh, 19th century London it's this kind of creepy, uh, dense, complicated city full of rotting buildings and history and layers upon layers. Could you talk about creating the kind of the underground city? And you're, you have a fascination with things that are underground, don't you? Yes, I do. I think I'm fascinated about generally about cities, about places, about their character, their history, how they are shaped, what, what all that means. And Barcelona is a city that, that really allows you to do a lot of that. As a matter of fact, you mentioned density. Barcelona, until very recently, was the third densest city in the world. And, uh, and there's a lot of, it's, it's a city, it's one of the very few cities in the world and in and, and, and Western Europe that has never been destroyed entirely. You know, there are many cities in Western Europe that are very old, but they have destroyed or burned to the ground one, two, three times. So it's very hard to really get the entire, their entire history. At some point, you, you can go as far as the X century thing, because be, after that, you know, be, before that, and there's nothing. In Barcelona, you can walk 20 minutes and touch the stones of 20 centuries. It's like a tree trunk, you know, you cut a tree and you see all the circles, and you can see the entire history, and maybe that tree has been there for thousands of years, and you can follow that because it's already there, it's in the skin of the organism. And Barcelona, in many ways, is the same way. You can go, you can go from the, the, the stones of the Roman city and you grow, you go after the medieval city, the expansion of the 19th century, and you keep growing, and you can follow the entire history of the city. And that is something that is quite unique. 
because it's there are very few places in, in, in the world in which you can you can do that most most everywhere has been completely destroyed raised in a war or or by a fire or things like that even in America of cities that are much younger have been destroyed completely at some points and it's very hard to find elements of their history before a certain time because there was a great fire that destroyed it all and then you have mostly the remains maybe from the 19th century, things like that, but it's very hard to find. And in Europe is the same case, but not in Barcelona. It's a accident of history, but it's fascinating. And I think it's, this gives the city a very specific character and allows you to find a lot of this underground world because all of these things are there, along with the vibrant modern city and the very fashionable and cool place. That is also part of it, you know? That's another layer. There's another cut in the, in the tree trunk. But I think what is interesting is beginning with that and getting inside, inside the tree, because that would give, there's something about the city, there's the soul of the city that attracts people, the people who want to go there, who want to stay there, and who want to see and say, oh my God, there's something unique about this place. I think this is what visitors discover about the city. And there's something that it's, it's an accumulation of the history of the place, of its architecture. There are many things that are unique. There are types of architecture in Barcelona that are unique in the world. You can go anywhere, you won't find that stuff. And in there you find an entire city made of these fantastic buildings. It's also an accident of history. There was a period in the late, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, in which a, a movement, an artistic movement, connected to what in Europe was Art Nouveau, uh, was developed. It's what they call in Catalan modernisme. And it turns out that Art Nouveau in, in, in most Western Europe lasted for six, seven years. It was a very brief moment. So we have some things, some objects, some buildings. You go to Paris, to Brussels, to Vienna, you find some of these wonderful buildings. But there are one here, there are some objects. You go to Barcelona, this Art Nouveau thing, but in a much deeper and a more flamboyant style, lasted for 35 years. And it got really deep and also happened at the same time there was an economical boom in the city. It was the great expansion. So all these fantastic buildings, these mansions, these incredible structures were built there. And there's nowhere else in the world where you can find that. And this was a, there's something about the objects you get inside this building. This house is something about how the chairs were, how, you know, how a wardrobe was. It, it's an entire civilization that is it, it's fascinating. And this is the place I was born. I was raised there. I was absorbing these things as a child. I said, you know, I want to use all this, and I want to give it a dramatic context. I want to use it because it's a fascinating thing, and as a character, as, as, as a world, as a universe in which you can set mysterious adventures and romance, a lot of things. And I think, yes, it has a lot of connection with, with this Dickensian world, the, the, the Victorian London and its density, this contrast of, of light and shadow. But I think it also has a very unique character to it. And this is one of the things I've tried to do because this is my hometown. I'm a product of it. And I say I want to use it and I want to do, bring my own contribution, my own stylization to the tradition, to the literary tradition of the place and, 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 and invite people to discover this fantastic Barcelona as one more of the characters in the stories. And I think people, readers respond to that. Either the locals, you know, that have lived there all their lives, rediscover the city through the eyes of these books. And then many readers who have never been there or have no notion of the city say, I don't know, um, sounds familiar, but I've never been there. I don't know what it is. They become intrigued about the city after reading about them and say, well, you know, I would like to go there and find if all this stuff is true. And then they go and they say that, yes, it's true. It's there.
and, and in many ways the, what the books do is they open your eyes to find these places and to discover them and, and realize that yes, that they are true, they exist. So there's a tower house in the angel in the mist that really exists? Most of the things in the novels, both in Shadow of the Wind and in and, and, and the Angel's Game, exist. Some of them are not, are fictitious. Or in the case of the tower house, there are many structures similar to the tower house. In the place where the tower house is set, uh, right now, there's actually nothing because during the Spanish Civil War between 1936 and 39, that place was bombed. There was an air raid and it was bombed. So right now, there's an empty lot. So that's why I said it there because there are other structures, other houses around the city that are exactly like the Tower House or even more um, stranger than that house. So everything I write, everything I put in the city, if it's not already there, it could have been there or is extremely similar to something. Something's for the requirements of the story. You move things, you know, and you make a tram car stop in a square where actually in 1922 it, it stopped two blocks from there. And I said, well, I know, but you know, I'm going to have it stop in front of the post office because that's more convenient rather than uh, used to pages moving a character from the different tram car. You know, things like that I may change, but not not much. I'm trying to be very faithful because I think what it's interesting when you play around with, with history or with places is to be always honest and true to, to the reality and then stylize and create fiction around it, but use always what is already there. You know, when I think back about reading both your books, it's there the experience of reading them is almost like going into an archaeological dig and digging back through the layers of history. Could you talk about creating these kind of layers? Their layers seem to be very, very important in your book. You use them in terms of describing the city, in terms of the way you plot, the way you create the characters. To me, it's uh, one of the things I try to do when I'm writing these novels is, is create works that the work, as you say, in many different layers, many different levels, and hopefully at the same time, but that invite the reader to, Im you can implicate yourself in, in the process as much as you want. You can, you can sometimes just take them as mystery stories or as a romantic story or as a love story or as a drama. You can read them as, you can read them as that and something else, or you can keep digging, you can dig implying yourself in all these different layers, all these things. And some of them are, they have a lot of literary references. A lot of them have to do with history. A lot of them have to do with the process of storytelling, of language. There are many different layers that are there ready for you if you want to take them. You know, if you don't want, you can just take one or two or three, as much as you want. And also I think it's interesting to, to try to write books that depending on who you are, depending what you're bringing into the game, can be different. This is one of the main things that I was trying to do with the Angel's Game, because Shadow of the Wind was a book that essentially did all the work for you. You just laid back and enjoy. And then, yes, there were many layers, and it kept sprawling and opening in different things, and, and, and then eventually everything clicks back and, and completes itself, and, and the circle is, is complete. In the Angel's Game, I thought since if Shadow of the Wind was more a book about readers, about people who fall in love with literature and how that transformed their lives, uh, the Angels Game is more a story about writers, about writing, about the process of a storytelling, what it means about the writing life. And I thought it would be really interesting is to create a story that would force the reader to become a part of the storytelling process so that the very story would be altered, would be interpreted in different ways depending on who you are and depending on what you're bringing. That at some point, 
little by little, you enter the skin of this main protagonist, this narrator who's telling you about these things that happened to him. And at some point, the, the book becomes a hall of mirrors. And depending on who you are, what, you, what is inside of you, the story acquires different meanings. And this works in different layers. So the story can be interpreted in different ways. And you are the one who eventually closes the circle. And you become part of the story. And this was one of the things that interested me from the beginning in trying to, uh, to, to write the Angels game. And that I thought it would take the, the, the thing, you know, the, the, this idea of these books around the notion of the cemetery of forgotten books one step further. You know, it strikes me you would have been a great computer programmer because... I uh, love computers. <laughs> one of the things that you do in this book really well is use loops. You, there's lots of great storytelling loops and, and circles. You talked to you were just talking about the Hall of Mirrors. Could you talk about circling back on yourself and, and, and bringing these kind of uh, reflective surfaces into the narrative and, and loops as a storytelling narrative device? This, this takes me back at something I remember many years ago when I was a kid. Uh, my brother uh, asked my parents for a computer. Well, I think it was one of the first personal computers that were available, cheap, and he bought it. And I remember what I used to do is I learned a programming language, kind of primitive one, to program a strange loop so the machine would start making bizarre drawings. And I was, I, I remember spending, and my, my brother was going crazy because he didn't know how I was doing that. Say, how the hell do you do this stuff? And I said, I don't know, but they're fun. All these strange graphics going like, do, 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 kind of psychedelic thing like 2001, you know, that kind of tunnel that you're high speed lights, things like that. And I did that, and I remember, I don't remember what was the programming language. I bought a book of that, and I learned it out, and I was creating these things, having fun with them. Well, it just is, has nothing to do, but it's just this memory came when you mentioned loops. And, and yes, I try, I, try to, I try to bring a lot of these structural devices into the stories that, that take the reader one way into a, kind of into a tunnel. They bring you, they lead into different things. I think that it's, it's interesting to try to, to create storytelling that works at different levels, that implies you in different levels, that it's not just one purely sequential. And 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 for these things to work, I don't think all this complexity has not, not to be apparent. I think that I'm not trying to make the reading difficult. By the contrary, I'm trying to just, you know, engage the reader. You're just reading, you're reading a story, but all these things are working there underneath the surface. You don't need to be aware of them. I always say this is like driving a BMW. You drive. You don't have to be an engineer to enjoy driving a BMW, but if you you drive one, one Series Seven loaded, and then you drive a Chevy Malibu, you say, "Oh my God, what happened here?" There's a difference. You don't need to be an engineer to say, "Say I don't know what," but it's a different thing. Of course it is, you know. And uh, and and I think that what is interesting is to, to to create things that have all this richness, all this complexity that you can enjoy something from a pure instinctual level because they are already there, set up, they are designed, and they're completed for you. You just have to enjoy them. And there's something to me very important about the pleasure of reading, the pleasure of plunging into something that it's complex, that it's rich, that does things with you, and that you're just enjoying that. You don't need to know how it works to enjoy them. You can just sit there on the wheel and pull the gas, and then it's a magnificent machine, you know, and takes you on a great trip on the road. And, and, and this is something, and for that, yes, you have to create many little things, and you have to create many little mechanisms and see how they work and dismantle them and assemble them again and try them again until it works, until it does what it has to do. But that's the job of the writer. 
one of the things that uh, the Angels game talks about a lot, you have a lot of different creeds. And, and I have to ask first, uh, the Bible, do you read it every year? No, actually, I don't. <laughs> I think it's one of the things that the characters, sometimes I read it. I think it's, it's a very interesting text. I think it's a very interesting uh and if you think about the history, how the, how the Bible comes to be become the Bible, how this all different forms, and how the the church through the centuries decide what what text going there, what translations are, what is correct, what is not. I think it's a fascinating story, and sometimes we take for granted that as if it had been, you know, from the creators of the universe. Now, the Bible. Well, no, the, the history itself of the, of the book, of the document, it's, as with most foundations of religion, it's very interesting where where these texts come from, where is their origin, who wrote them, why, and 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 sometimes I have that, but I don't I don't read it every year. In this case, it, it's, it's this conversation between this kind of mysterious, diabolical publisher who wants to, to, to get the protagonist to write actually a book that is going to be the foundation of a new religion, and one of his advices is that he should read the Bible every year because, you know, you learn a lot reading that. And he's not meaning it necessarily from a religious or a faith uh, principle. He's talking about the mechanics of of faith or of of the storytelling of mythology and legends, things like that. But I think there are many many writers who who have studied that. Maybe nowadays it doesn't sound so fashionable, but I think think one of of the writers who always said that was constantly reading the Bible and rereading the Bible just because it was so interesting was William Faulkner. I remember I found that I was like, what? William Faulkner was rereading the Bible? And and if you think about it, it makes some sense. (laughs) Uh, This book, a lot of this book um, is about creeds. You have writers' creeds, you have readers' creeds. Could you talk about writing those in and using those as, as, as plot points and keeping the reader fascinated with, with the variety of creeds that, that you unfurl for us? One of the things that was interesting here, one of the, the issues or the themes in, in the Angels game is, is why we believe the things we believe in. Or why do we need to believe in things? How do we structure systems of beliefs, of ethical, um, and how we, how we, especially how we justify our, our actions, or instincts, or needs uh, according to this, to this, uh, to these codes, to the systems of beliefs? See, this is something that has always fascinated me. How we, how this need that we as human beings have to believe in things, and to believe in, in explanations that sometimes are outlandish or sometimes not, but we need to that. We need to believe in things, or even belief in the non-belief, which is also, to me, it's all an even more dogmatic form of, of, of belief, because actually you're kind of denying things that your reason doesn't allow you to deny. Say, well, we don't can really say that that thing is not true, because we cannot say. You may doubt it, you may be skeptical, but sometimes this, this dogmatic denial of something is also a form of extremely dogmatic belief. And I'm fascinated by those things. And by the way, tent, we, we create these stories with these systems. And one of the things that the story tries to do is, it's not trying to convince you about everything, but just trying to make you aware of this and, and initiate a dialogue with, with, with the reader about these things, why, why we are like this, why we need to believe in things, why do we need to create ideologies, political systems, national creeds, or legends, religious le- legends that justify specific 
moral order? How do we, it turns out that our biological instincts seem to be wired into this and they seem to acquire mythological or legendary proportion through the system. I find this fascinating. It's like an extension of biology. Our biology is so complex, our mind is so complex that at some point starts creating systems of belief that are almost like organic extensions of our of our mind, but they're they're in the ether. You know, they they are there, and I find this fascinating. In many ways, I think it's extremely timely issue when we look around the world. All this this profound beliefs is this dogmatic thought, the systems of dogmatic thought about how people persist in believing in specific ways and close their eyes to the rest of the world in a way. And, and, and this is one of the things that the Angels game tries to have fun around, you know, try to use this and try to create some kind of mysterious story around all these systems of dogmatic thought. I love the phrase, history is biology's dumping ground. <laughs> yeah, this, <laughs> this is one of, this is one of the one of one of the characters says so and, and pretty much this is you know it's it comes from this notion you know and in many ways we think about it and and that's that's the case you know a lot of the the, the what we are creating the structures we create in our societies through history are an extension of our biology and we are so adamant on denying that or even contemplating that that we tend to replicate the same things over and over and over because we are we, uh, we will never, it seems like we are unable to, to, to face human nature as it is and try to depart from that, say, well, this is human nature, let's understand it, and let's maybe try to be better people. Or, but, but first, accept what we are, understand ourselves, rather than deny that and try to, and, and it's very interesting how human beings tend to try, and all, all these systems of beliefs, one of the first thing they do is they put uh, human beings outside of nature. It seems as if it's nature with some kind of playset, some toys that somebody had put there in there for us, as if we were not part of it, as if we were not animals, organisms that belong to a specific species. It's like, no, no, we are outside. Nature is there for us. We are apparently on top. And invisible people put us in there, and they are have this telepathic connection to us, and they are monitoring our our, our, our thoughts. And and, and it's a very interesting notion of how millions of people think that a supernatural being is monitoring their thoughts at every time and caring about their dirty thoughts. For instance, say, you know, somebody's very upset of you because you're looking at the miniskirt of your secretary. And the notion that we are so important that some supernatural being may be concerned about those thoughts, I find that fascinating and how we create entire systems of belief about those things. And, and I think it's, it's a great material for, for, for fiction. To, to use these things, not not to convince the reader of anything or to preach or to moralize, but just to invite the reader into a dialogue that I think can be fascinating and fun. You mentioned the word dialogue. You mentioned the word fun. You write wonderful dialogue and, and a lot of great banter. And, and one of the things I, I love about these books is both of them, they're very, very funny. E- even as we are getting swept away in great romances and mysterious conspiracies and mysteries and adventure and thrills, they're also pretty damn hilarious. Well, I think that humor is a very important element and allows you to, to tell many things. And and since these books tend, tend to have these extremes of drama, of tragedy or darkness, symptoms or some, some parts are spooky or scary, I think it's important to create this fluctuation with diff- many different elements. And humor, comedy is one of them. 
Well, the thing the, the thing about humor, I think, what is it's important to, to to use humor as one more of the weapons of, of the whole narrative arsenal. I think in these books we find a lot of drama and darkness and mystery and romance and many things. So I think that comedy itself is is another very interesting element to bring. And I try to to use it as as a, as a counterweight sometimes, or or to introduce certain things. There are many there are many things that that the humor allows you to to to, to express to explore the. And, and, and I don't want to renounce that. And I think it also allows the, the whole narrative to go. And I think it's interesting to do that. And for instance, it's like the, the traditional, uh, the role of the fool in, in, in sometimes, you know, in, in a lot of these classic comedies or tragedies or in Shakespeare dramas, the fool always speaks the truth. But since he's the fool, he's allowed to do so. If he were <laughs> being taken seriously and spoke the truth, they would cut his head you know, from the get-go. But then the fool is always... And I think what humor allows us is a lot of the play the role of the classic fool in literature. Humor can tell us the truth. Can, but since it does it in this kind of a sly way, this kind of a slanting way, uh, I think it, it, it invites a different kind of reflection. And at the same time that it makes us laugh, it makes us think. And I think it's a very important, very interesting weapon. And I try not to renounce to that. And I think that it, it also allows you to characterize very well. I think one of the important things about dialogue is that, uh, and I think in, in, in dramatic terms, some, quite often novelists characterized through exposition and this is something that in dramatic terms is not very convincing not very useful you, you find a narrator that is telling you how a character is and he thought like way well, it was like that and okay you get the information you say yes this character is like that but in dramatic terms that doesn't work and the effective way to characterize is through action and dialogue it's the reader who has to decide how a character is through the action and, and, and through the behavior of a, of a character, not because a narrator is telling you something, is deciding that this guy was a very good person, and he was very nice, and he was very funny. So, well, says you. <laughs> you know, but I'm reading this stuff, and certainly he's not funny, he's boring as a brick, and, 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 and dramatically you're not being convinced of these things. And I think that one of the weapons that humor allows you in a dialogue in, in general is to be agile and to be able to characterize and to introduce a lot of things, a lot of information, a lot of elements into the story in a very agile way. And the reader is not aware of that, but you're receiving a lot of impacts with them. And it, it's, it flows fast. And, and it's a very interesting thing to, to try to do. One of the things I love about these books is that you create the feel of the supernatural without ever actually resorting to the supernatural. Um, will you ever resort to the supernatural? I used to. I, when, when I was writing these young adult novels, I would use the supernatural and create these big adventures that had some supernatural elements. Then I stopped doing so. And now what I've been doing, both in Chat of the Wind and more so in uh, The Angel's Game, is playing around with this notion with the big, with the with the staging of, of these things, but always keeping at a time where, you know, it, it, it does not necessarily, it's not necessarily what is happening. It's up to you. You decide it has to do more with the atmosphere. With, uh, because I think one of the great things about the Gothic tradition of all these supernatural elements is that they really allow you a, a much wider arsenal of tools. All these things allow you to charge everything with meaning. 
and they provide an extremely rich dramatic context. I think one of the great things about Gothic is you can charge out the weather, the smells, the atmosphere, the light, everything. The, the blood buildings. red skies over Barcelona yeah, all every these things day. Have, <laughs> they, they, all these things have, have meaning. They, have, they become players in the story rather than just objects. And I think this is one of the great things. And one of the great, I think, what great ghost stories do, they allow to tell you so much more. You don't need to believe in those things. They're just great literary tools. And I think I like to play around with those things because I think they invite and, and, and they allow me to tell the story with, with, from many different angles and try to provide a more intense experience. And, 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 and it's fun, you know. Sometimes it's fun to, to play around with the spooky things and try to and spook the reader and, and take the reader in a journey that is unexpected and that you have to turn all the, all the, all the lights on in your home because you're kind of being spooked and you were not expecting that. I think it's fun. It's part of the experience of reading. Oh, reading's supposed to be fun, and that's certainly it what your books are. It should always be fun. It should be mandatory, you know. If, if you're not having fun when you're reading, if you're not fascinated, if you're not engaged, there's something wrong there. That book gets closed. <laughs> These two books have some really interesting connections. One's not really a sequel or prequel to the other, but they're shot through with many connections. It's like looking, it's like one of the, a 3D diorama where you can walk through and see different things. Now, you've talked about there being four books about in this kind of series. Could you talk about creating this? I mean, when you created this house, do you have like, is there some database you have somewhere or a, a mainframe series yeah. right there in the bunker next yeah. to Dick's bunker? Say, so I have another one built right there with the mainframe with all, this, all the stuff in here. And it's also, you cannot find it on Google Earth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that would be fun. Now, actually, this came from, from a notion. Uh, when I started working on Shadow of the Wind, I got this notion for four stories that could be kind of interdependent but also standalone stories. They would be all intersect at this, at this world of the cemetery of forgotten books. They would share some characters, some plot lines, some elements. But ideally, they would be books that you could read just one or them or two or three or four if you, if you were interested in doing so in any order. And they would provide some kind of Chinese box of stories, a labyrinth with four points of entry. And depending on how you read the stories, or one or two or more, your entire reading experience would be altered because you would realize that there were other layers, other meanings, other implications to the story. So the puzzle would be constantly be rearranging itself in front of you and would alter your reading experience. And I thought that this would be something interesting to try to do. But it would be composed of four different books, completely standalone. Each one of them would have its own personality. And, but they would be also connected to the other. So if you read more than one, you would start seeing a lot of connections and start revisiting the other books you had read and, and realizing that there were other things in there that you had not been aware of on the first time. So this was the idea. So I decided to begin with The Shadow of the Wind, which to me was kind of the introduction, the point of entry into this world. And then follow it with The Angel's Game, which to me has the feeling of a second act. Not because the story necessarily picks up where Shadow of the Wind ended, uh, but because the, as in second axis where the plot thickens, where everything is more complicated, things get darker, dangerous. And at some point we get really down deep into the whole thing before we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And this is, this is what the mood of the Angels game. It's getting deeper into this universe before we are able to go. And we explored it further. And many of the things that were already exposed in 
and Shadow of the Wind, such as the Cemetery of Forgotten Books, some of the stories of this bookstore of the Semperi family, and all this, we learn much more about that. Some of the connections between some of the key characters in Shadow of the Wind, and here we explore them from a different side, and we suddenly we find connections that we cannot foresee, but that alter the way we perceive the story from Shadow of the Wind. But you could have not read Shadow of the Wind and you read the Angel's Game. It, it stands on its own and the other way around. So they're completely independent, but in some ways related. How far are you into the other books in the series? Do you, are you writing them in parallel or in, or in serial? Yeah, like Pirates of the Caribbean. Let's <laughs> make five movies at the same time. You know, Let's save some money. Uh, not really. I thought one of the things I realized when I had this notion, at, at the very beginning when I was working in Shadow of the Wind, I thought that it would be possible to write maybe all these stories in, in one book. But then I realized it would become a monstrous 4,000-page novel, big as a Volkswagen, that, that it would just be impractical. And on top of that, it would ruin the structure that I had... That I, that, that I thought each one of them had and, and, and the personality, the tone. I thought that what would be interesting would be that these four books had a, its own different tone, its personality. So I thought, you know what, the right way to do this is write each one book at a time. And each one of them is going to be very complicated to write and complex. So that's that's the way. So what I thought is, is try to keep this in some kind of organic process. So, you know, as long as I'm interested in this idea, as long as I find that there's something in it, I'll keep on working on these books, and I hope to complete them at some point, but I need to work in each one of them one at a time, because each one of them is a world of its own, and I cannot write them all, or, or write two at the same time, I could not do that, it's not the way I work, so, uh, and also because this this is a notion that I had some years ago, and as the years go by, you keep thinking about it, and of course, yes, I have a very general notion of these stories and outlines about them, but I keep changing things, and I keep getting new ideas that I think are more interesting, and I like to keep it alive, not just try to complete this cycle of something, of an idea that I had nine years ago or something like that. So to me, it's an ongoing process, and hopefully we'll continue growing. And these other two ideas that I'll wrote, they are pretty much set up in my mind. I'm sure that I'll change many things about them and I'll come with new ideas and, and they'll, I'll keep them, try to be exciting for me and then hopefully for the for the readers. You, you talked about the different moods of the book. I think one of the moods of this book that is, you mentioned this uh, term a few times, Grand Guignol. Could you talk about what that means to you and what it means to this book? Yeah, what I thought, you know, Grand Guignol were this originates especially in France, and there's a certain literary tradition or, or storytelling tradition of very over-the-top, uh, kind of sinister and dark things, and a lot of the time excessive and kind of baroque. And I think one of the things I wanted to do here is um, each one of these books has some kind of res writer in residence. Shadow of the Wayne had this character, Julian Carax, who is the writer who is inside the mystery of the story. And one of the things I wanted to do is I, I felt that each one of these books should be felt as if it, it was written by the writer in resonance. So The Shadow of the Wind, in many ways, has the resonance of what the things we keep hearing about Julian Carac's novels. And in this case, the protagonist of The Angel's Game is David Martinez, this young writer who makes a living writing this Grand Guignol adventure mystery series under a pen name for a couple of pirate publishers. Is a serial. Is the Grand Guignol probably is closer to when, when in the English tradition we would call the Penny Dreadful. And I thought it would be fun to try to make the hero a writer of Penny Dreadfuls, if only because this is a genre that has been so generally vilified that in many ways it's trying to, you know, 
defend these this great writers who were the great professional writers of the 19th century, people who were writing novels, publishing installments in newspapers and magazines. And, and, and at a time when they had to fight for their audience, where they could not afford the kind of pretension and snobbery that quite often nowadays surrounds certain literary circles. And I would say, you know, I would rather, even if it's going to piss off some people, you know, try to make the the, 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 the protagonist, this, this guy who's really a great writer, but he has to make a living, he has to survive, and he writes these novels, these books, these Spanish dreadfuls, these grand guignol stories, and then try to use all the conventions of all these great Victorian mysteries, these Gothic things, and try to deconstruct it and reuse it, and trying to use all these, the, the trappings, the stage trappings of all this very theatrical tradition that comes from the Phantom of the Opera, all these fantastic French turn-of-the-century serials of mystery, of adventure, and, and try to, to, to reconstruct that and try to create a story that used many of these elements. And, and sometimes I remember being very interested years ago when this happened, I think, more on, on film than on literature. But I remember a great example of this was when the, the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark took all these old serials that were really very cheaply done and, and took the same spirit and said, let's do that, but well done. You know, let's, and then it worked fantastically. It was a fantastic thing, but essentially it was taking all these old matinee serials that were really crappily done and they were really Z or B or D serious material, but try to reconstruct them and try to come with something new that retains some of that spirit and, and but really try to get it right, try to do it well and give it production values. And, and I thought it would be interesting to try to revisit some of those genres, some of the Grand Guignol, some of this kind of a turn of the century serials, and try to give them some production values, try to make them, get them right, because I think there's something fun about them. There's something about the fun and the pleasure of reading mystery stories and these extreme romances and dramas and tragedies, and just try to get them right and try to allow the, the reader to, to enjoy them. And also because I think that when you play with with deconstructing genres and blending things, I think you're exploring the process of a storytelling and you're inviting the reader into reconsidering a lot of the notions we have about literature, about language, about style. And I think it's a very interesting dialogue that is established with the reader and the text when that happens. And in the meantime, you know, we're just having fun, which is one of the main things in literature, I think. The pleasure and the beauty of language and the fun and the pleasure of reading. I've been speaking with Carlos Ruiz Sofon. His newest book is The Angel's Game. Thank you for joining me, Carlos. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.